WTF 2050 is proudly sponsored by X Energy, Solar Solutions for Tasmanian Conditions, AB Finance, Ethical Mortgages, and Unilarks, Triple Glazed Windows. You're listening to WTF 2050. What's the future? Future. Thirty years goes like that. I wonder. We've actually shown we can do these sorts of things. Without risk, there is nothing. Hello, I'm Anna Bateman. And I'm Leanne Minchell. And today, Leanne, it's a bit of a long episode. Worth sticking around for, though, Anna. Probably one of the most interesting ones we've done. Yeah, Frank Kuyper's a world tourism professor and big brain. I love his accent as well. I didn't get to meet him. It was you and Jess Robbins for this episode. It was me and Jess uh, lately of Global Island Partnership. There's a fantastic bit which might be my favourite where he says, don't tell me that green doesn't make money. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think is awesome. And then after that, we were inspired by his talk about bird watching, you know, oh. and ecotourism. Charles Munn. Charles Munn. And what so, a guy. What a guy. So this interview is coming up towards the back of the episode. He's a really extraordinary philanthropist, ornithologist, has saved millions of hectares of the Amazon rainforest. And halfway through our Skype with him, he's interrupted by one of his researchers who's stuck up a tree surrounded by bears. Yeah. So we began the interview by asking Frank like, what he knew about Tasmania. Um, the Tasmanian devil is very famous. It's the end of the world. Um, when I was young, my father gave me a globe. I was, I think, five, six years old. And he said, you have the people of Patagonia. And I was like, oh, they're going to fell off the, the globe. He said, no, no, there's gravity. And then he said, but these guys, that's Tasmania, they're our antipodes. And I said, why? Because I didn't understand the world. And he said, yeah, the world there is upside down. A kid does not understand that. I thought you were all disabled or something like that. <laughs> but you look quite healthy and you're in good shape. Um, to make a long story short, I worked together with uh, a small team from Vancouver called Think Social Media. And yeah, we could get along. Our thinking was aligned. We were absolutely non-believers in advertisement, billboards, ads on television. We thought that the direction of tourism is totally wrong. It's broadcasting messages. It's not having meaningful conversations with people. That kind of thinking. And I said, yeah, if you ever go away, please give us a ring. I did not, but they rang me and all the rest is history. So we're now much more in strategy and strategic thinking, planning, capacity building. What do you mean a meaningful conversation with your audience? Meaningful conversation means that you have to attract people that really add value to your destination as well. If we are going to broadcast or project to the world messages that are generic, you will invite generic thinking people. A lot of people want their home situation to be recreated in another place of the planet, you know, except you don't have to do the cooking anymore and the laundry and so on and so on. I don't think that it's a very meaningful and viable situation. Meaningful is the passion of people. So if someone is passionate about, for instance, bird watching, or if someone is passionate about fly fishing, you have these experiences to offer and you can develop them in in the right way, then you can have meaningful conversations. What's your impression of the Tasmanian tourism industry at the moment? 
That's a tricky one because it has a very subjective view, but for what's worth, a lot of people are talked with are very conscious of that you have to be proactive, right? So one of the things is that there is very recent research that the Tasmanians embrace the pace of growth of tourism. Only 8% was saying that it's going too fast and the overwhelming majority say it's a good pace and even 20% or something like that. Don't quote me on the right figures. Uh, was really say it could even be faster. And I'm not surprised because if you're honest, you look around, this is not a place that is trampled by tourists at all. You have a lot of space. It's, it's very quiet and calm. The problem of cities like Barcelona is rooted in the behavior of the cities that really were like, wow, tourism is going to pull us out of the misery. Till the 80s, Barcelona was not that rich city. So everybody thought, yeah, tourism, that's what we have to do. There was no planning. There was no capacity planning. There was no long-term vision. So what did they do is attract all the cheap airlines. So who comes to Barcelona? People with not that much money, young people from Great Britain, Germany, whatever. It's not so much about the country. It's about the profile. They don't pay for accommodation, they sleep on the beach, it's warm and nice in Barcelona, they come for the cheap booze and on Sunday in the afternoon they're harassing people on the Ramblas fly. So then you get these growing negative sentiments together with a cruise ship, because one, two, ten, fifteen cruise ships is a lot of people and they go all to the same places and the locals can't go to their restaurants and cafes anymore and there are traffic jams. So that piles up and now the new mayor of Barcelona, Ana Palau, has been elected because she promised, and she had no party to back her, it's really grassroots, but she really promised strict rules on tourism, and she did. So if you are a visitor in Barcelona, you have to pay to enter public spaces like Parque Cruel. They are now raising the entrance fee for cruise ships to the harbor to mitigate the influx of, of big cruise ships and so on. But it's much more easy to be proactive than fixing a problem, right? Tasmanians know that these things can happen. But the question here is, are your politicians aware that they really need a long-term vision? I think that will be vital. Because your value proposition is being green. And you just touched on the the need for, I guess, a long-term vision. Mm -hmm. Did you see and hear through your conversations people talking about that vision and, and what did you hear? Yeah, a lot of people say that it's necessary. Probably there's a bit beating around the bush because I think it needs to be done by politicians together with your citizens. One of my favorite examples is when... Iceland went bankrupt. Typically, Iceland, they're very flexible, right? They're good in reinventing themselves. They created a new constitution together with their citizens. The cunning thing about Icelanders is they broadcast that to the whole planet and the whole planet is melting like, oh, they're so clever. They do it. <laughs> Actually, it was not really finished to the end. But only the idea to do that and, and to work in that way is great. WTF 2050 is brought to you by X Energy, solar solutions for Tassie conditions, energy audits, solar design systems and installations. Find out more, xenergy.net.au. So 
As a consultant, a professor, I do a very tiny thing with my company. We really insist on workshops with citizens mm -hmm. because we do not believe that tourism only belongs to the tourism industry. So workshops with retired people, young people, journalists, teachers, whatever, people who are passionate about. So you have from the beginning a validation, right? I saw it in Calgary, saw it in uh, Ottawa, I saw it in Copenhagen. What happens is that citizens are raving about it. Hey, who owns the brand Copenhagen? Who owns the brand Tasmania? Who owns the brand Montreal? The people who live there. Mm -hmm. So this goes bottom up. So there comes a bit of pressure on the people who are responsible in the city and even on politicians. And that's why I talk to the mayor of Calgary. And that's why I talk to the president of Slovenia. Because they have to relate to something that is viable. I co-wrote the strategy Copenhagen for Copenhagen. They were very thankful to me, but they put us on the map as well. So their strategy is called the end of tourism, as we know it. Everybody forgets about the last part of the sentence. But what it really wants to say, because Canadians, and, and especially in the US, they think, oh, typically Europeans, they don't want tourists anymore. They're going to close the door. They don't want refugees. They want nobody. It's exactly the opposite. What Copenhagen is really saying is, we hate the word tourism. We want to treat our visitors as temporary locals. So what we need is a quality of place and a quality of life for our residents and a quality of visitation and a quality of experience for our visitors. And we have to balance both. So Copenhagen is so brave that some pockets of the city, some areas, they will only talk about it. Because locals have indicated these areas are so precious for us and so vulnerable. So even the tourist guides have the education and the instruction not to talk about these places. So it's a growth strategy, but in a very qualitative way. Uh, Slovenia as well, although they're not good in co-creating, but they have epic the side. They say we're green. Now, Slovenia is a very small country in Europe, but I see them as a national park of Europe. They have great mountains, they have bears, they have beaches. And everything they do is green, green, green. So the government gives grants to ecologists. Mm -hmm. These ecologists are full for the next two, three years. So never say to me that the word green is not generating money. It's the country. We speak about 600 euros a night. But middle-class people from the north, like the Netherlands, Scandinavia, France, Germany, Belgium, they come there. These families have kids that grew up in very urban environments. They don't know that strawberries are also in gardens to be found and not only on your plate. So there is also a philosophy about gastronomy in Slovenia. They call it from the garden to your plate. I met a guy here in Tasmania and his son is running a company, 1800 tourists a year. And they do bushwalks and so on through Australia. And their philosophy is no traces left. It's having no footprint. And it's booming. And they make a lot of money. That is for me a very meaningful way. And that should be a direction for Tasmania as well. So how do you find that your engagement then aligns with broader directions of the city? Where to start? I think Europe is more advanced in this. 
because of necessity. So the competition in Europe is much fiercer. When I leave my home and I do the drive from Launceston to Hobart, which is 200 kilometers, then I go to Amsterdam, Paris, London, I will see Cologne, Rotterdam, Lille, and so on. That's the competition. And all these cities want to attract young people, students, businesses, tourists, and new inhabitants, right? So I think it's not because we're more sophisticated or smarter people. It's born out of necessity. The best of us, the best cities, those who get it, have understood that we use the wrong definition of tourism. Actually, we should abolish tourism. Because what we have done is now we have a department for tourism, but we also have a department for heritage and one for culture and one for sports and one for transport. What is the experience of a tourist? That's an intersection of all these departments. Do you know the word silo management? So they're all locked up in their own budget and their own people. And tourism is like the ugly duckling, yeah? You do the promotion. So you're actually executing like seven, eight strategies, one of sports and one of heritage and one of food and gastronomy, and it's not going to work. So there is a sort of evolution going on and the big DMOs like Visit Scotland, Visit Flanders, Catalonia, they get it. The strategic capacity that they have goes up and goes closer to the political level and it's really like scenario writing for a place. And the promotional part goes down and sinks and blends in with the more communication departments and so on and so on. And I think that that's what goes wrong in the United States and Canada and probably in Australia, that you lock up tourism in a very narrow definition. It's the operators, it's the people who have businesses. And, and that's not going to work if you're serious about not having growing negative sentiments of your citizens towards tourism. You're listening to WTF 2050. What's the future? Future. When I arrived here, my first day, and I was on top of Mount Wellington and I was doing the ferry thing to Mona, it reminded me, and sorry my European framework of references, but I thought this is Scandinavia. This is green, this is mountains, there is a lot of water here, you have rain, people are very laid back. It sets you apart, so... The brand Australia is one of the strongest on the planet, together with, for instance, the Netherlands. You know, if you go to a tourism fair, they still have fairs. I don't know what's the use of a fair, but there are fairs like WTM in London and ITB in Berlin. And then you see the booth of Holland. It's about cheese, windmills, wooden shoes, <laughs> tulips. Then you see Australia, you see kangaroos, koalas, beaches, surfer boys. So it is a very strong brand. And I get it, for years, Tourism Australia, the only aim, the only target was getting people on planes to come to the island. But we're living in a different time, we live in a time of globalization. They will come anyway. Now, that very strong brand can also work against you as Tasmania. Because if you say we're different and we really respect our island and the quality of life, we are different, we're more laid back, we have organic wine, we have biological food, we're proud on it, we embrace it. But there is that huge, strong brand, like very generic, 
Now, you have to differentiate that. If you're really serious about being different, being an islander really cares. Some people said to me, yeah, we're the cradle of the green movement in Australia. I don't know whether it's true, but if that's true, true, embrace that. If you Google Tasmania, they say you have the purest air on planet Earth. Yes, we do. These are unique things, right? So means that it sets you apart and you really have to work around that value proposition and being a foreigner, a leader for Australia and ecotourism and all these things. And I was really interested in your interview with Leon and he talked to you about the cable car and you said, you know, if the residents don't want it, it shouldn't, probably yeah. shouldn't go ahead because you can't be designing cities for the tourists and not the people who live there. Yeah, and then you show leadership, right, to your citizens. Like, okay, we take you very seriously. It doesn't mean you don't have to try and attempt and to to bring it to them in a way maybe they accept it. But if there is a clear no, it's a clear no for me. Um, I think a lot of people in the history were puzzled by that. Everybody seems to want that cable car thing. But maybe there is a sort, I don't know, is it with the mountain that is a sort of sacred place or is it something... Yeah, it's a really sacred place yeah. for Tasmanian Aboriginal people. It's then it fits your value proposition. Do it differently. Why not organizing something very creative with electric shuttles or whatever? I don't know. It's interesting though, because I had somebody who's um, in business say, oh, no, it's a good proposal. And, and there's cable cars all over the mountains in Europe. And I said... Yeah, but I think that's exactly the reason why there shouldn't be one on that. Hmm? Because you, good you look at that mountain and besides the television aerial, which is almost obsolete now because we're all digital, you look at it from the city and it's a wild mountain. And people yeah. go, wow, and I can drive up there in 15 minutes, you know. So make your destination special in the eyes of the people who are going to enter it. That's what Galapagos is doing nowadays. So they branded their... uh, So there's only one airline that can go to the island. You need to sign a pledge, meaning this is a document and that is what Galapagos is all about. You should have read it. It's the memory, it's a treasure for our planet. I respect Mother Nature, blah, 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 blah. You have to sign it. You go on the plane, you will see a movie, a documentary about Galapagos Island. So make it special. I always compare two national parks of the United States, Yellowstone and Yosemite. Yellowstone is on the edge of being overcrowded, especially in the summer. And they had some incidents. A guy from Asia wanted to make a selfie with a bison, but the bison did not agree. So... (laughs) The guy was terribly hurt, right? And another one was with bear spray. So there is a family, they want to do a hike, which is great. Individual travel. Very remote experience in Montana. But people did not know how to use that bear spray. So they were thinking, like, you have mosquito spray, you use that proactively so that the mosquitoes do not come. So they were spraying their kids from head till toes and they ended in a hospital because it hurts your eyes it's it's yeah it's a pepper spray but 100 times stronger yeah so what is missing here education now if you go to a yosemite park 100 kilometers before they are doing that educational promotion thing like have you thought about your bear can i didn't i didn't have a clue what a bear can was and they repeat that message and more frequent when you come closer. So you get it by your, you're in Yosemite. Yeah, yeah, we will see bears and we need a bear can because, you know, these guys have a very good nose. 
So they make it a very special thing. This is not a very average tourist experience. That's what Iceland is doing now. They have the Iceland Academy, and you should watch these movies. Um, because one of the things is they have too many tourists, but not that much. A lot of these people don't have a clue where they are, right? For instance, there are complaints of tourists that people of Iceland go naked in a hot tub. Sorry, they do that already for a thousand years. They don't have to adapt their lifestyle. So they make funny movies now in Iceland Academy so that people know what they have to expect. So it sort of helps to prepare you for understanding the culture a little bit or understanding behaviours you might find a little bit different or weird so you're ready to embrace it. Making that experience special and unique. Yeah, and managing your experiences. Mm Because if people expect a lot of things that are not rooted in reality, you will have face problems. Mm. It's managing experiences. 30 years ago, they won the campaign to stop the damming of the Franklin River. Mm -hmm. And that was what created the World Heritage Area. Bob Brown started that protest and started the Green Movement. So the Green Movement internationally was born in Tasmania 30 years ago. So where do we want to be in that 30 years? And I think... You know, I get that it's hard for politicians is that we're constantly in this four-year election cycle. Mm -hmm. So there's no policy. Yeah. I think the trick you have to do here is to avoid all misunderstandings. There's a lot of conservatives ruling in Denmark. Being green is not being progressive, is not being conservative. I know parties that are very, very conservative. Even in Norway, there's a far-right party that is green. So I think the mistake that a lot of green parties make, especially in my country and in Europe, is that they always stress on the negative side. Don't do this. We forbid that. We forbid that. You will never win the vote if you do that because they're human. That's human behavior. We don't want to be robbed of all our comfort and our privileges. But if you can show that green also means doing trade and doing business and thriving and growing, Maybe in a slower pace, but in a good place. It's still a growth. But with criteria around protecting yeah, the environment. Yeah, absolutely. What nobody knows in Australia is that the Danish government, at a certain point, has said, we have to do something about our beaches. So everybody in Denmark has a second house at the beach. But when the big money guys in, in the globalized world is very easy come in, there is a threat that no Danish people can afford anymore a beach house. So there was legislation about it and ruling that there was priority for Danish people to, to buy a, a house on the beach. And they're not afraid of doing that. Ecotourism should not be put in a corner like meaning small. Now, I gave the example of bird watching during the conference, and it's only in the United States a billion dollar market. And I tripled that figure. It's, it's Harvard research. There are three million guys in the United States that want to travel all the globe to have that one rare bird in front of their camera. But these people have money and respect Mother Nature. So the niche is not small. This is about speaking about passion groups. Now, ecotourism, I see it everywhere. And it's not, of course, in the amount of the mass tourism. But do we need that mass tourism or do we need a patchwork of a lot of more meaningful initiatives? 
So if you're looking for a, a patchwork of ideas and niche markets that aren't necessarily small, what a fantastic way to put it, isn't it? Because we also spoke to Charles Munn, who's had massive success in conserving major parts of the Amazon rainforest whilst creating new industries at the same time. When we called into him at his home in Connecticut, he was actually managing a bear stand. Well, he was helping a woman get out get out of a stand sitting above a bunch of black bears. I'm uh, I'm projecting confidence because I know that the bears will do just what I said, but she's uh, not quite so confident. She's the one sitting on top of them. Yeah, well, I've, I've spent a lot of time at uh, eight to ten meters from bears without any protection at all, except my bear spray, and they're, they're not doing anything to me. Mm. So uh, anyway, I'm, I'm getting. I'm supposed to be talking about Tasmania, not about. No, 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 that's fine. But actually, Charles, it's sort of a nice way into the interview. Tell us first about the little bear stand briefly, and how that's working within what you do. Well, I, I think your I think your your Tasmanian devils and wombats are much more interesting, but uh, <laughs> because they're more exotic for most people, but uh, the black bears have recovered um, in Connecticut near New York City to the point where it's possible to see them, at least on a guaranteed basis in certain spots. And that's what we're trying to manage those spots so that there's no conflict between bears and humans. Is it a tourism thing or is it, is, is it about getting people closer to bears or? Well, it's in beta testing now. So things are moving faster than I would have expected. So I think we might open for uh, paying guests in July, I'm guessing no. And you said, I think, that black bears, they're much gentler than brown bears. They're not as frightening as brown bears. Uh, brown bears, of which grizzly bears are a subset. Brown bears, of course, are distributed across uh, northern Asia and northern Europe, and even parts of some of central Europe. The brown bears are typically much more aggressive in general than our black bears. And so brown bears you have to be much more careful with. They're much more powerful. They're not accustomed to anything being more dangerous than they are. Of course, humans are more dangerous than they are. But other than that, brown bears are uh, 100 times more dangerous than black bears. Black bears really are not dangerous. Well, I um, do feel like if you need to jump off and talk to her again. She'll, uh, she'll come back to me if she's having trouble. I told her okay. to come back to me, not to, not to suffer in silence. Fantastic. Okay, so Charles, um, we very much wanted to talk to you, particularly because of your work in the Amazon and your work in getting birdwatching and ecotourism together. So could you talk to me briefly about what is happening there now? And um, you've saved millions of hectares, have you not, through kind of ecotourism and making birdwatching work for tourists? Well, yes. Um, it's not just birdwatching. It's, uh, I would say that the mammals are, the key mammals are more attractive to a larger set of people. Although I'm, a, I'm an ornithologist and I like the birds a lot. I think each little bird is as interesting as a bear or a jaguar, but that's not what the general traveling public feels. So we are protecting lots of birds and lots of forests, probably relying more on the main mammal species and making sure you can see them and photograph them well. Do guides take out people so that they can observe the animals in their natural habitat? You know, if I was over there, what would my experience be? Well, first of all, we want to make sure you can take a trophy photo of yeah. An, yeah. an amazing, preferably top predator or a very beautiful monkey, perhaps. Monkeys are not really predators, but uh, say jaguars, giant otters, um, mountain lions. In the case of Chile, we guarantee viewing a mountain lions there in one area. 
The maned wolf is the largest wild canid. It's about twice as tall as a timber wolf or a gray wolf, but it doesn't weigh much. It only weighs about 60 pounds. It's a very delicate animal, very beautiful. All of these animals we watch from a distance from which you can shoot trophy photos with a GoPro or with your cell phone. Thought about buying a house in Tasmania? Oh, I knew all the time. What about finding an ethical mortgage broker? Uh, that sounds good. There is one. You're about to tell me about them, right? Yes, AB Finance. It's an ethical home loan consultancy with an open door policy for those wanting to join the global divestment movement. So you're better at this stuff at me, Leanne. When we're talking ethical investment or ethical mortgage, what do they mean? Well, when you take a mortgage from a bank, you're giving them money when you pay your interest back. And do you want it going to a bank that's propping up the fossil fuel industry? Maybe. If you do, go to one of the big four. If you don't, go to a mortgage broker who can find you a bank that's divested from fossil fuels. abfinance.com.au For this series, which is kind of looking at the future, so what would you like to see in the next 30 years? And Tasmania is, you know, obviously extraordinary wilderness, but it's under quite a lot of pressure from developers, people wanting to build in World Heritage areas. When we heard about what you were doing, I guess we immediately thought there are lots of opportunities for Tasmania here. We have lots of little communities who obviously were reliant on the past, on mining, on forestry, and so to be able to find a way of bringing local jobs, obviously, and exploiting in the best way what Tassie has to offer. I mean, I know so little about what's currently going on in Tasmania that it's not fair for me to say much of anything, but from a great distance, I mean, maybe I'm some kind of a barometer of wildlife-loving traveler who would say, oh, I'd love to see the Tasmanian devil, I'd love to see the wombats, and then a few other things, mammals, and then I want to get into the birds. So I would guarantee those mammals, and so I don't know if the places where they're giving snacks to the devils, if the Tasmanian devils, if if those locations are beautiful and done aesthetically well, then maybe you've already created the the number one draw. I guess you have little penguins too, is that right? We have fairy penguins, yes. Yeah, so it would be the penguins, the devil, the wombat, and those three would be your pillars, and then you would build everything around that to try to make sure people stay a little longer and have a richer experience. But, I mean, I'm an ornithologist, so I, I would love to think that people would come to see your, what do you have, 14 or 16 endemic species, or is it 12? I got, I got confused at the moment, but something like that. But, in fact, the birders spend a little less per day on average than do people who want to see the mammals. And it's all about photography now. People love to photograph, whether it's with their cell phone, their mobile phone, or with a small point-and-shoot or even a bigger camera, and they love to post the images right away. We all know that. Anything successful will spread very quickly. As soon as, as, soon as uh, people are guaranteeing those things, it should spread. The news will spread very quickly. Just pulling out of Tasmania a little bit, if you could go forward to 2050 and we had more of a balance between conservation and business and just the way that we interact with nature, can you think of a few examples of what that would look like to you? Let's talk a little bit about the Amazon because it's Mm. uh, the world's largest remaining forest and uh, it's still 77% intact. So most people may not understand that. They may think it's more than half gone. It's not. Uh, Most of it's still there. The rate at which it's being lost is uh, of concern. It was being lost at a much higher rate up until 2006 than the Brazilians especially got it under control. The deforestation, they hammered it back down to quite a low level. Now it's starting to creep back up again. So we're concerned about the potential increase in deforestation, principally for cattle ranching and then also for soya production. Those are the two main threats. There are um, so many reserves in the Amazon that if they are just actually protected, if there's enough budget to protect them, then there's an enormous amount of forest protected because of the remaining 77%, 54% of the 77% 
is in protected areas. It's either owned by indigenous Indian tribes who have complete control of it and they keep people out who are deforested. The rest of it is all biological reserves. And if you add up the entire Amazon, uh, 42% of our in protected areas. And that's an incredible amount and that's worth protecting. So my goal, uh, my specific specialty is to try to create enough jobs in protecting the environment, especially ecotourism, and each one of these reserves that uh, the reserves can protect themselves into the future without having to rely on uh, steady funding from the federal government in Brazil, which is under its own financial pressures. So we have done experiments in some Amazon parks that we've created where the ecotourism works and it's enough to protect the park from uh, deforestation and invasion. And of course, the more of these existing protected areas we can guarantee protect in the future, the, the better the situation is in terms of carbon release. We protect the mm. forest from being burned and releasing a lot more carbon. We don't need even more carbon in the atmosphere. So anything we can do to, that I can do or we can do to try to try to shore up the protection of existing reserves is well worthwhile. If you put a lodge at the mouth of a river that has, say, a million acres behind it, which is typical in these parks, or a million acres, two million acres, up to five million acres. If you put one lodge at the choke point at the entrance to that river, you can protect several million acres with one lodge that may only need to produce 40 or 50 or 60 jobs directly there. We've used that model and it works. So we'd like to expand that model. The Amazon is the size of Australia. The Amazon Basin has about 80 cities that have regular jet service. Now, most people have no idea of that. And so you can get to most of the protected areas in the Amazon from a jet airport within a half a day, which is about as long as people are willing to travel. Mm. And so right at the moment, I think Amazon Ecotourism is performing at under 1% of its potential because they have not been showing the most exciting stuff in the Amazon, which is largely in the canopy. And so we're, we're working with movable canopy towers to make sure you get close to toucans and macaws and a lot of fancy monkeys and can take your trophy photo and take it home and make your friends jealous who went to the Amazon and didn't see much wildlife. So we think we, we think we can we think we can protect an outsized number of national parks and other kinds of reserves and Indian reserves in the Amazon by by getting this tourism right. So we have some models that have legs. Now we just have to to spread it across uh, different parts of the Amazon. So that and it's worth going to the Amazon a number of times because the, the wildlife at one end of the Amazon is quite different from the other. It's probably worth going three or four times. Most travelers should go three or four times if they want to see wildlife potentially more, but at least three or four. Most people at the moment think it's only worth going once, if at all. Are you being approached by other countries or other communities or whatever to say, what's your blueprint and how could it work in our backyard? Uh, well, uh, hang on just a second. My, my bear biologist is saying, okay. <laughs> she's saying everything's okay. That sounds like the, she parted the Red Sea of black bears in order to leave. Right. So, hang on just a second while I, I'm gonna ask her, <laughs> sorry about this. Yeah, no, no problem. It's almost sunset, I don't really want her to have a run-in with the bears. And now bears really like to avoid you and bear spray hurts their eyes so badly. They're not interested in ever trying to deal with you. Já saiu? Conseguiu saiu? Saiu? E quando você falou, por favor, licença, eles foram embora? Yeah, she's good. Everything's good. Good, good, good. She asked the bears to leave. She clapped her hands and said, please, I'd like to leave now. And they didn't, they didn't pay much attention to her. <laughs> but but she, she said that they didn't show any aggression either because black bears are so chill and amazingly mm. chill. If they have not been hunted, they're very chill. They're very relaxed. Mm. Yeah, uh, right. In this state, there's no hunting. So none of the bears have mm. ever been shot. So the bears are chill. So she came down out of the tree. And uh, when she when she actually hit the ground, they, they realized, okay, she's come out. She's actually down on the ground with us. And they sort of ran off a bit. And so she was able to just stroll away. So everything's fine, just like I said it would be. 
So, Charles, just a final question. Have you been approached by other communities to say, is there a blueprint, is there a template that we could follow? Yeah, I have interest from Indigenous communities, yeah, uh, because uh, we've created uh, lodges owned by Indigenous people, which in each case have turned out to be, well, a, a couple of them are so far out that it, it was too hard for guests to get there, and so those did not succeed. But there have been three that are Indigenous owned that have done very well, and so other communities would like to do that. But there are so many Indigenous-owned lands that it's now important to demonstrate how you can get up into the canopy and be in front of the tree that has all the action at a given moment. And that's the main problem, because in a, in a square kilometer of forest, you may only have typically four or six trees that are full of all the wildlife on a given day. And then two weeks later, those trees have stopped fruiting, and then four or six others are fruiting. Mm. And, and that's it. So there are millions of trees that are not really very interesting, and there are just a handful that are full of all the animals. So you need to know where they are. You need to have towers next to them at the time. The first time anyone will ever have done this will be this year when I finally put enough towers at enough places at a place you can get to quickly enough from an airport. So we've never actually tested this properly. So next year I can tell you how the market starts to respond to being right in front of the, of the most interesting animals in the, in the fruit tree of the moment. Fantastic. Charles Munn, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for being patient with my breaking away for the, the bear management. Not at all. And we'll put up on our website the link to the bear video with your permission. Yeah, sure. Great. Brilliant. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Fantastic. Charles. Have a great day. Bye. Thanks, Charles. Thank you. I'm very glad that uh, researcher is safe from the bears, even though Charles did explain that black bears are much less aggressive than brown bears. Yeah, it's easier to say that when you're sitting behind the computer. I was with her, man, sitting up a tree above a bunch of bears. I'd be nervous. Yeah, I'd be nervous too. Amazing work that he's doing. And we will put the videos of the bears and more information about what Charles does in the Amazon and background on the organisation on our website, wtf2050.net.au. You've been listening to the second series of WTF 2050, proudly brought to you by the Australia Institute, where ideas and research matters. Thanks to our studio engineer, Michael Shelley, at The Green Room, and a big shout-out to producer and music man, Fletcher Babb. Please check out our other episodes and join the conversation on our Facebook page or our website, wtf2050.net.au. Remember, you can listen to the first series and all of these episodes on iTunes and Spotify.